following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Good morning, family. How are you? Praise God for you. I'm really excited to be here, getting God's word with you. Uh, I was just thinking as we were singing, you know, we, we started meeting here in this facility uh, July 12th, and, <clears throat> you know, the entirety of our time here, we've been kind of dealing with the, the whole COVID situation, and that's meant that, um, you know, the vast majority of us are, are masked, and I just, you know, this place is old, man, it's 135 or so years old, it was built for like singing acoustics, I'm just kind of excited uh, when we're past all this thing, see what it's going to sound like <laughs> without all those masks. Um, and, and that leads me just, I want to make a couple comments before I dig into God's word, just to kind of let you know, um, what we're thinking and how we're praying. And, you know, most of you can look around probably this morning at, at the pews and realize that, you know, we've got higher numbers of, of COVID cases. And listen, I understand there's a lot of weeds you can get into on how people interpret that, but that, that's not my point. We're going to stay out of that. Here's what I want to say and what I want us to understand, um, I talked with every children's leader last night, and some a couple times, and we were discussing the best and safest way to move forward in light of uh, just anecdotally people that you know are real close to us in terms of relational connection, relational sphere, or folks that are a part of the church that um, have either been around people that have tested positive or some have tested positive themselves, and how do we move forward? What is wise? What is loving? Right? And uh, so you know we. The options were maybe we don't do children's discipleship at all, or we try to modify or whatever, but consistently talking to everybody, uh, we came to the conclusion that as long as we can, as long as we can do it safely, provide some stability for kids uh, as they're going through this. I don't know about you guys, I think a lot about how little ones are processing everything we're going through right now. And so uh, that idea of we're going to just do it as long as we can is... As long as it's safe and we can keep precautions in place, um, that's, that's kind of characterizing our entire approach to the whole thing. And so what I want to hear, is, I want you to hear is, um, if, if you're here today, I'm grateful for that. If you're joining us through live stream, I'm grateful for that. We want everybody to know that we 100% affirm the reality that each person, each family has to assess all the factors and make a decision. And we're behind what anybody's doing. So I don't want anybody to feel any pressure one way or the other. Uh, we're, we're all doing our best here, man. I think that's kind of a simple summary. And I think it's helpful for us to just believe that about one another, right? We're all doing our best. And, and we need to uh, hope for grace from others, but also be liberal in, in giving that to others as we all navigate this. Can you say amen to that? Amen. Well, I said a bunch without even saying who I was. Maybe it's your first time here and you don't know. I'm Pastor Vince. I do a lot of the Bible teaching, and that's what I'm here to do now. Uh, if you would, please turn to the book of Mark. We're going to be in chapter 9, uh, actually starting chapter 9, verse 1. So we're just breaking into chapter 9. We're continuing, as we have been, verse by verse, through the book of Mark. It's been really good, really rich. Um, I think we found some surprising things thus far, uh, some challenging things, and today will be no exception to that trend. Um, we're going to read verses 1 through 29, so lots of verses, but I will try 
to not hold you here more than is polite. <laughs> Amen? Okay. All right, so uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, we will have the verses on the screens. We also, if you don't own a Bible, we'd really like to give you one. So just let us know after the service. And now uh, we have those for free, okay? We're in Mark 9. As I said, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 29, okay? Here we go. And Jesus was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, for he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. All at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. As they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. They seized upon that statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. They asked him, saying, Why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah does come and restore all things, and yet how is it written of the Son of Man that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has indeed come, and they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. And when they came back to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. Immediately, when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. And he asked them, what are you discussing with them? And one of the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought you my son, possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground, and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. I told your disciples to cast it out, and they could not do it. And he answered them and said, O oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. They brought the boy to him. When he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion, and falling to the ground... He began rolling around and foaming at the mouth, and he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. It has often thrown him into the fire and into the water to destroy him, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. After crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out, and the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him, and he got up. And when he came into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately, Why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. Praise God for his word. Amen. Uh, I assume you realize we have lots of work to do. Lots going on in that set of verses. Uh, so let's get, let's get cracking. I think the first thing we need to look, come back to verse 9, uh, and Jesus makes this statement that, that some of them, right, he says, truly I say to you, there are some of you standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. So what, what did Jesus mean here? Okay, so there's, I'll just give you 
some positions and then where I, where I think we land. Some think that, you know, he's just talking about the transfiguration that's about to happen six days after he makes this statement. Uh, some think that this includes also the events up through Pentecost. So it would be this transfiguration that happens, Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and then Acts 2, Pentecost, where the Spirit of God comes down upon the disciples. Uh, I think, you know, and we could get real, real deep into the weeds on why people think one or the other, but because of the context, because we see this statement from Jesus and then it goes right into this story of the transfiguration, I think it's safe to say at least Jesus is talking about the transfiguration. I think it's probably likely that all of those things are included in what he's talking about. I think the kingdom coming in power is displayed in this in this transfiguration on the mount, but also in his death, burial, and resurrection, uh, and for sure at Pentecost, right, when the Spirit of God is poured out upon the apostles, okay? So, but there's this element we have to contend with that even after Pentecost, we have not seen the fullness of God's kingdom established in the earth. We know that the fullness of all that God's kingdom is going to bring, that's not going to happen until Christ's second coming. And so that if we're thinking through that, we realize it puts us in a bit of a position. It's maybe not real clear how to think about the kingdom of God. How are we supposed to think about it based on what Jesus said and, and what the writers of the rest of the New Testament said in light of all that Jesus said? Is the kingdom of God present here and now? Or is it something that we are waiting for? And again, you'll find uh, debate on that. But I think the, the most biblical, holistic understanding of that question I just gave you. Is, is the kingdom of God present in the here and now, or is it something we're waiting for? I think the best answer to that is yes. Right? It's yes. Uh, and this, this idea that I'm going to unpack for you a little bit is often expressed, or it's often expressed um, as this idea of the kingdom of God being already, but not yet. Okay? Already, but not yet. Uh, and this, this idea, it, it helps us to understand how the New Testament can say in one place that we are holy because we've been given Christ's righteousness by faith, right? There's, there's verses that'll talk like that, or we've been sanctified, right? So it's like, well, okay, then it's already happened. But then we have other verses, very commonly, that will call us to be holy as we walk out the process of sanctification. And so it's like, well, what are we doing here? Which one is it? Are we holy or do we need to be holy, <laughs> right? Uh, and, and I'm going to quote one theologian that wrote on the subject, I think encapsulates this well. He said this, if we are to live biblically in between the times, the, times, the time of Jesus' first coming and his second coming, we must trust indicatives and obey imperatives. Biblical indicatives are another way of expressing the already. You are holy. Imperatives express the not yet. Be holy. Solely trusting in indicatives will lead to antinomianism or discarding God's law because we are saved, right? You ever heard or seen maybe expressions of that? Sometimes it flies under the, the verbiage of hyper grace, okay? Uh, it, it's, it's a mistake. So that's, if we merely obey indicatives, he says it'll lead to antinomianism or merely obeying imperatives will lead to legalism, obeying God's law in order to be saved. Grace in the gospel opposes both, right? And if you've, if you've been around, you, you know one of my favorite things to, to kind of 
talk about, especially as it pertains to the church fathers, is Tertullian's idea that the gospel is always crucified between two thieves, one being antinomianism, the other being legalism, and that both, in their own way, steal power from the gospel. And that our job uh, is to stay in faith and trust upon that kind of skinny middle road, right? Jesus talked about the path being narrow, didn't he? Yeah, and there's big, wide ditches on either side. And it, it takes, you know, it's not something typically that you, you get it once and it's like, okay, I got it. It's, it's, it's a lifelong resaturation of your mind and heart with the truth of the gospel that keeps you from ending up in one of those ditches or the other. And, and you may have a proclivity for one or the other. You may be more likely to, to trip into antinomianism or legalism, but man, you can, we can jump from one ditch to the other, different times in our life, different situations we're going through, but the gospel can be the compass that keeps us on that straight path out of both, okay? And that's, we, we're seeing, we, when we think about the kingdom of God, we think about how the Bible talks about the kingdom and, and our place in it and what the process uh, is that the, the world, but us as believers are going through. This all, idea of already not yet is, is helpful to stay out of confusion, okay? Uh, let's look at verse two. He said, you guys say, ooh, there's 29 verses. That was all verse one? We'll, we'll pick up the pace. It's okay. We'll be all right. Uh, verse 2, it, it, six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. Okay? First thing, this, <clears throat> I just, I'm going to jump off on a little bit of a side note out of verse 2. I don't think it's the main application from these verses, but, but this idea I'm going to point out from here, it tends to be such a prominent stumbling block for people that I want to make sure we mention it here, okay? What do we see? How many, how many disciples did Jesus have, like the, you know, the close ones that he picked that were following him everywhere? Quick Bible quiz, should be an easy one. There were how many disciples? Twelve, that's right. How many got to go up on the mountain? Three, okay? And, and that, there's maybe lots of reasons for that, but part of what it at least shows us, and this isn't the only time that Jesus took those three off to the side. There were other miracles that they were only allowed to see. And, and I'm not, again, hear me, I'm not saying this is the only reason for that, but it, it does seem to be one of the reasons. Jesus had levels of friendship within his relational sphere. Okay? It appears pretty clearly that he had a closer relationship with Peter, James, and John than maybe the rest of the twelve and then the 70 that are discussed, and then the rest of everybody else that maybe kind of tagged along for parts of the journey, right? And, and what I want us to see here is that that's not bad or wrong. It's a simple reality of human life. The reality is we only have so much time and energy to invest into relationships, and, and people are going to be closer to some than to others, okay? There are some people that... that don't like that idea, and I understand why, but what I would submit to you is that noticing the friendships of others should not lead us into self-pity or jealousy. It should lead us to seek out and invest in the relational opportunities that God puts in front of us. It's a common tactic of the enemy. I can tell by your silence. I, I caught a group of people this morning. They're like, I don't know if I like that. Well, don't, don't be too silent because you know what will happen. If you provoke me, we'll just this rabbit trail will get way long, Okay. Here, this is the reality. You can't be as close to everybody as you are to some people. That's just a fact. But I think sometimes what happens is 
that Satan uses this idea of that you know, all relationships need to be equal, everyone should be the same amount of closeness to one another. We okay? Amen. Is the wind blowing? Yeah. All right. Don't get pulled out that door, brother. I think it's just a storm. If you're joining the live stream, we're in Norwood, Ohio, and apparently it's storming here. And uh, as I mentioned previously, this building's 130 years old, so uh, I spent a lot of late nights here and didn't see any ghosts, okay? So I think you're okay if that's what you're worried about. A lot of late nights here, okay? Amen. Only the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost the only one. Who knows the Carmen song? Get up here on a mic right now. Woo! 90s Christian music. Bless God Almighty. It's good stuff. Carmen, he got us through, didn't he? <laughs> All right. Well, maybe that storm was a blessing to me because none of you were liking this whole idea about relational you know, differences and all that and how we need to not be jealous about it and kind of quit having a pity party. So we'll just move on. Verse 3 has good stuff. Let's look at that. What does verse 3 say? Hey. <laughs> I mean, you can not like it if you want to, but acknowledging that principle will help you. It'll help you. Amen. Okay. It says in uh, verse 3, And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no longer on earth can whiten them. Hallelujah. We, we may view this transfiguration as a, a spectacular miracle, and it is. But it is interesting to consider the nature of what is really going on here. This, this word transfiguration, it, it has a connotation that the radiance displayed by Jesus in this um, event, it, it, it's, well, it, it's not like the vampires in the Twilight series, okay? How did it work for them? Like, if they got out in the sun, they had supposedly, like, diamond sparkly sin, or uh, skin. Well, there was sin, too, but diamond <laughs> sparkly skin. And uh, that's, you know, it was, a, it was just a reflection of other light, but um, this, that's not what's happening here. That's, that's more like a, that's an outside thing happening. This this wasn't an external light reflecting off of Christ. It was an internal light being revealed. Okay? And I've read several commentators who, who made sure to point out the fact that the greater miracle here was not the momentary revealing of Christ's glory, but the concealing of it up to this point so that he could accomplish his purpose of living among us as a human. Come on now. Yeah, okay. Verse 3 is where we had to get. That's what warmed us up. Okay. The, the best comment, and this won't be a surprise for some of you, that I've seen on this was, was none other than the Prince of Preachers himself. Okay, so Spurgeon has a point on this. I'm going to read it to you. Here's what he says. This was not a new miracle, but the temporary pause of an ongoing miracle. The real miracle was that Jesus, most of the time, could keep from displaying his glory. For Christ to be glorious was almost a less matter than for him to restrain or hide his glory. It is forever his glory that he concealed his glory, and that though he was rich, for our sakes he became poor. That's a good word. Come on now. That's a good word. Amen. Let's look at verses 4 through 8. It says, Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. 
For he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. All at once, they looked around and saw no one with them anymore, except Jesus alone. So here's the question. Why did Elijah and Moses show up to this mountaintop party? Okay? Why did they get an invite? Peter had an idea about it. Let's examine what we can tell about that. Clearly, Peter decides, hey, it's good that we're here, and there's almost some humility in it. It's like so that they can, they can build altars, but his problem was, hey, let's build an altar to all three. Let's build an altar to Moses, an altar to Elijah, and an altar to Jesus. And what does that show that in Peter's mind, right, Moses representing the law, Elijah representing all that the prophets had spoke, and Jesus were on a level playing field. Well, God's about to fix that idea for him and for all of us, okay? The reason Moses and Elijah were there was because of what they represented, but also to show that Jesus was the great and final fulfillment of both the law and the prophets. That the point of the law was to point us ultimately to Christ, that all that was spoken of by the prophets was to give us the anticipation, the anxious expectation of Christ's coming. That is why Moses and Elijah are there, and that's why, as we get further down, we're going to see that all of a sudden they're just gone. And then God says what to the disciples? This is my son. Listen to him. Listen to him. Verse 6, uh, I think, is helpful in revealing in at least a couple ways, okay? Let's look at that together. For he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. We see the motive for Peter's suggestion here to build an altar. It was, at least in some part, it was because of a holy terror at the sight of God's glory shining forth from Jesus. And we also see that in his fear and insecurity, he did not know what to say. And, and we can learn from his mistake here, and we can realize that sometimes, and I would dare say many times, especially when we are feeling fearful or insecure, the best thing to do is say nothing, <laughs> right? Peter, in true form, on Transfiguration Day, does his thing. Everyone else is just quiet in the immense radiance of God's glory being revealed through Christ. And Peter's like, uh, 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 uh should we build altars? Right? <laughs> uh, I gotta say something, Right? Proverbs says that even a fool is thought wise if he keeps silent. Yeah, I spent a bunch of time with family this last weekend, and I kept saying that to myself. I said it out loud to a couple people. Don't, do you, what do you think about this? Oh, <laughs> I don't have any thoughts. <clears throat> God's sanctification in my life. Come on, man, let's praise the Lord. I've learned how to be quiet sometimes. Not nearly enough, I'm sure. Uh, let me read you this quote. This, is, this quote is late, from later in Peter's life. Saying nothing in humility is always better than saying anything in fear or pride, especially on the internet. That actually wasn't from Peter. I'm just kidding. I made that up. But uh, had he known about the internet, I could very well see him saying that based on the life lessons he learned uh, while with Jesus. Uh the second thing, so the first thing I think verse 6 helps us with is this idea that 
if, if we're feeling fearful or insecure, man, it's okay to say nothing. And, and oftentimes it's appropriate, okay? Um, and I think it's a lot of times out of fear and insecurity that we, and, and the internet has helped us with this, we end up popping off at the mouth and, and saying stuff that's unhelpful. Um, you know, you, you don't always have to build an altar. Sometimes you, just, you should just stand there, let your jaw be dropped and, and shh, okay? Here's the second thing we see in, in verse 6. Uh, this, this reaction from the disciples, and I'm talking about this, this kind of, this holy fear, um, it, it can help us understand better the, kind of the answer to or the way to think about a deep theological question uh, that my seven-year-old Max hit me with this week. And this is not the one that some of you saw that I shared uh, online where he hit me like two weeks ago with, uh, okay, Dad, so before God created anything, was he just floating or was he falling? I'm like, uh, give me a second. <laughs> think about that. <laughs> it's like, hold on, this kid, this kid's understanding like the creation of space and time and, and, and the relation of that to a, you know, omniscient, um, omnipresent, you know, totally powerful being before all that. And it's like, wow, son. Okay. I had an answer for him. Go, go check out the post. I'm not going to take much time for that. But he hit me with something else. You know, it's like a weekly occurrence. Guy's stumping me. So, or making me think real hard about how to explain it to a seven-year-old. If you want to know if you understand whatever you think you understand about theology, find some kids and try to explain it to them. That, that will let you know how you're doing, okay? So we're, this, this, this question came up. We were reading the story of the Garden of Gethsemane from the Jesus Storybook Bible. Uh, I'm going to read you the excerpt real quick so you can hear what prompted the question, and then I'll give you the question. Here's what we were reading. It's, it said, uh, God was going to pour into Jesus' heart all the sadness and brokenness in people's hearts. He was going to pour into Jesus' body all the sickness in people's bodies. God was going to have to blame his son for everything that had gone wrong. It would crush Jesus. But there was something else, something even more horrible. When people ran away from God, they lost God. It was what happened when they ran away. Not being close to God was like a punishment. Jesus was going to take that punishment. Okay? And so we're reading this in the, in the storybook Bible, and Max interrupts me. He's like, hold on, Dad. Wait, hold on. I'm like, oh, here we go. He said, Dad, hold on. Why does sin mean we have to be separated from God? That's kind of a weird rule. You know what? He's not wrong. <laughs> He's not wrong about that. Uh, it is kind of a weird rule, and, and I think that many people wonder why God doesn't just overlook our sin, right? If, if he loves us so much, why does he ever allow that distance between us? It's a fair question. And, and, and this is deep and, and multi-layered, but how I answered Max, I'll share with you. I, I said to him, okay, buddy, if you go in your room and you turn on the light, I said, can the darkness stay? And he said, no. And I explained to him that the scripture describes God like light and describes evil and sin like darkness and that they cannot coexist. It's not even so much like God pushes us away because of our sin. It's that his holiness and glory is so radiant and powerful that the darkness of sin cannot, it just cannot be in the same space, right? There are certain things God can't do. You know, the foolish will try to come up with these questions like, well, can God create a rock that he can't lift? And, and the idea of, of omnipotence and being all-powerful, people misunderstand what that means. God has still, there are still things God can't do. God can't lie. God can't be unfaithful. 
He can't go, his, the purity and perfection of his nature is of such might and magnitude that he cannot violate it. Okay? Which is really great news for us, those who trust him, right? I, I think that our struggle to understand why our sin creates separation between us and God is twofold. First, it's, it's the result of not grasping how dark our sin really is, but more importantly, and I mean that, more importantly, it's an issue of not being able to grasp how intense the perfect and radiant glory of God really is. And seeing Peter, James, and John being terrified by this revealing of Christ's glory, it, it can help us to at least partially conceptualize this reality, right? You've got guys that have rolled around with Jesus now for a couple years, and what they saw of the revealing of God's glory, which I can't imagine was even the fullness of what we will be exposed to in eternity, the full unveiled face of God, right? Just what they were allowed to see here uh, left them in terror, left Peter looking for rocks to build an altar so he could do something other than be locked into this vision, right? God's glory is <laughs> something. That was deep, wasn't it? It's something. I mean, what do you say? You know, keep, keep grabbing for synonyms, but I can keep grabbing for describing words. They're all going to fall pitifully short. <laughs> yeah. Language, human language has its limitations, man. Okay, so seven and eight, uh, we see this cloud. It says, a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Okay. This cloud is sometimes referred to as the Shekinah glory of God. And this, this cloud-like manifestation of God's glory, this is not the first time it's appeared in the scriptures. It was in the wilderness with the Israelites. It filled the temple in the days of Isaiah. You remember that? Uh, when, when the glory of God filled the temple in Isaiah's day, his response was not much unlike these disciples. There's some consistency, right? He's, he says, I'm, I'm unclean. I'm undone. I'm a man with unclean lips. You know, So he's... He's, uh, there's, a, there's a holy fear and a, and a holy terror that's a good thing um, as, as that glory of God came upon those people. So um, the, the disciples would have known, both historically and intuitively, that this was God's presence among them, this Shekinah glory cloud. And, that, that, and so what that means is they knew that. They knew this was God's voice speaking to them. Okay? It, is, it is interesting that God saw fit to speak this to them in this moment. Because, and why am I saying that's interesting? Because I talk to so many people. I've encountered so many times people that feel like if they could witness some kind of intense miracle like the transfiguration, something visual or something along those lines, it, it would help them to believe and obey the Lord. But what's interesting is this dazzling visual display of radiant and glorious light was, it was not even really the point. The point was to give these men another proof of who Jesus was and then to tell them to listen to him. You know, and, and why, why was it not enough up to this point? All that they've seen and experienced? I don't know, but I should ask myself the same question every time I'm struggling with doubts, right? Amen. <laughs> It's real easy to you know, get on the boys uh, for their lack of understanding but, or application even. Uh, but boy, we're often in the same boat and need the same grace that, and patience Jesus gave to them. 
The miracle here was to open their hearts so that they could hear this command. They're, they're hit, they're, they're shook with this, this blinding radiance of, of the glory of God coming from Jesus. And, and what, was, what it was meant to do was to, to open their hearts to hear this command. Listen to the words of Jesus. Listen to him. And what do we see there? Well, what we need to understand is that experiences in God's presence can be a powerful catalyst for sure, but they are never the end goal. God always points us back to his words to be the enduring instruction and the sustaining sustenance in our life. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then what did the word do? Verse 14, John 1. He became flesh. Listen to him. You have the opportunity to listen to him. You can obey this command given to Peter, James, and John by opening this Bible and reading it with a soft, pliable heart, by having ears to hear what Jesus has said. He's been the very word from the beginning. It's the word that became flesh. How does all that exactly work? I don't know. (laughs) It's cool, though. (laughs) And he's shown me enough that I can trust him, right? When his description of reality goes... Above my pay grade, it's like, I'm just going to clap. That's awesome. Maybe one day I'll get it a little more. Maybe I never will. I don't know. But I'm sure going to praise instead of doubt about it. Amen. Verses 9 through 13. As they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. They seized upon that statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. I'm not sure why that one's so hard to get, but I, I, I have the benefit of hindsight. So uh, They asked him, saying, why is it the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah does first come and restore all things, and yet how is it written of the Son of Man that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has indeed come. And they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. So we see Jesus, he's still aware that his disciples, they don't get the whole picture. And that means they're not going to be able to talk about it accurately. Um, and, and, and indeed, they really can't until they are filled with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. That's why I think this kingdom language ties all the way from here, Transfiguration Day, up to the day of Pentecost. What he's talking about, the, these guys getting a glimpse of the kingdom before they die, I think that's... And, and then the subsequent, after Pentecost, the subsequent building of the church, I think that's what Jesus is alluding to. But the reality is, these guys... Jesus, you know, it confused me for a long time why Jesus was consistently saying, don't tell anybody, don't, don't say who I am, don't say anything about that miracle, don't, right here, I know what you just saw, shut your traps, right? Like, that. don't say anything about it. What, what is the deal? Well, it's, these guys literally, until the, the, the work of Christ was completed, that he had, he had died and risen again so that by faith, these men could be indwelt by the Spirit of God. It was only at that point that they were even going to be able to connect all these dots and explain what they saw. Because they still don't quite get what this means. We can understand Elijah and Moses were there because Jesus is God in the flesh in the fulfillment of the law and the prophets because we have the benefit of the rest of the, of, of the word laying that out for us. These guys are still like, whoa, that was cool. Um, and Jesus obviously like, you know, important, but they don't have it all yet. So he doesn't want them going and preaching a false gospel or, or, or raising people's expectations about a false idea of, of Messiah. Okay, uh, he's, he's still got to show them what, what all this really means. 
Verse 10 and 11, they, they show us, though, that the wheels are turning in, in the minds of these three. Okay? Instead of disagreeing with Jesus as Peter had done before, right? Because just in the last couple of weeks, we talked about how Jesus told them he was going to be betrayed and had to die. And Jesus pulls him aside and starts rebuking him. And that's when uh, he, he gets that verbal spanking from the Lord, get thee behind me, Satan. You know, his focus was on man's concerns and not God's. But that's not their approach here, right? I mean, amen. They got to go to the top of the mountain. Jesus goes nuclear, right? Thankfully, now at this point, when, when Jesus is talking about, you know, resurrection from the dead, Peter is, isn't being so bold as to say, no, no, Jesus, I don't think you're right about that. At least now he's starting to go, okay, he's probably right, but I still don't get it, right? So they're asking questions. Their wheels are turning. They're trying to piece it all together. And one of the, one of the, the prophecies they were aware of was that before Messiah could come do what he did, that, uh, that Elijah was going to be on the scene. And so what, what does Jesus say? Well, his answer is that Elijah has come, and they did with him what uh, they wanted to. Basically, they, they killed him. And so uh, Matthew's account of this um, event, it, 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 it spells out for us a little bit more what Jesus is actually saying. Um, and what he is saying is that there's this idea that John the Baptist came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And so John the Baptist was the one that came and prepared the way. He was the one that came and did that, that kind of ministry of Elijah, uh, and then, of course, was uh, beheaded by Herod at the request of Herodias. But I want to be clear that we understand something. What does the Bible mean when it says John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah? Well, it's not reincarnation. We need to be careful about that. This is not that Elijah reincarnated in the way that some faith philosophies would, would think of that in John the Baptist. What, what it means is that there it seems that there was a, a prophetic anointing that could be passed from one to another. We see this actually when just before Elijah is, is caught up into heaven, right? Elijah didn't die. He rode a fire chariot to heaven, which is rad. Good for him, right? Uh, right before that, he, you know, Elisha asked for a double portion of his anointing. And there's this, there's this passing of the anointing of Elijah to Elisha. All right. And so, Again, I don't know how all that exactly works. You may find someone that thinks they do. I, I don't know. Uh, but somehow, that, that same anointing that was on the prophet Elijah was empowering and a part of the anointing that John the Baptist walked in. Okay, But it's not reincarnation in, in, in that sense. All right, amen. Verses 14 through 30. That This entire thing is kind of, they're coming back to the other set of disciples. Other disciples are... They're dealing with the situation. They're arguing with the scribes. And, and also what was going on is this, this father had a son who was, had, had this demon that was tormenting him. Uh, the symptoms look very much like epilepsy. Uh, but clearly that was not the case because Jesus ended up casting the demon out of him. So verses 14 20 through 22, they kind of lay out for us the problem. The problem being that uh, this, this man brought his boy looking for healing you know, said to the disciples, cast it out. The disciples were unable to do it, okay? Uh, and, and it's unclear, you know, there are, <clears throat> there's some debate, verse 19, when Jesus answered them and said, Oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. We're, we're not totally sure who Jesus is kind of exasperated with at that point. 
I would say probably for sure the scribes who are there nitpicking and arguing and trying to like goad the disciples probably because they weren't able to cast it out. Maybe the crowd, uh, maybe even the disciples. I'm, I'm, I'm a little hesitant on saying the disciples because of the way Jesus answers them in the end. Uh, that you know, he, he teaches them that there was an element of this that um, had to do with prayer, and I'm, I'm, I'll unpack that. But anyways, it's probably, it was probably everybody. <laughs> Jesus was probably just about had it up to here, right, with, just, with everybody. But man, he's <laughs> loving and patient and kind. It didn't just level the place, because he could have. Uh, verses 23 and 24 are probably my favorite in this whole uh, set of verses here. Let, let, me, uh, let me find these. It says, and, and so, uh, it, it says it is, so the father is responding. He's, how, you know, how long, Jesus asks, how long has this been happening to him? Verse 22, the father says, it's often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. So I just, I just love sassy Jesus here, don't you? I mean, when it comes through, I'm like, I know it's there. You know, it peeks out every once in a while. But when it's just real clear, if you can. <laughs> you know, I can almost imagine him looking over to Peter like, here, hold my tunic. You know what I mean? <laughs> hold on, hold on a second. <laughs> if. Uh, <laughs> but it's, so... That's his response, which is awesome. Then he says, all things are possible to those who believe, which is awesome. But, but we got to be careful, right? So I need, I need to flip this coin over. We have to interpret Jesus here through the rest of his word, or we can end up thinking that if we believe hard enough, that God has to do whatever we say, okay? And that's not what this means. How do we know that? Well, God didn't just give us this verse. That's why we don't read the Bible and build doctrine off of one verse. Because if you just looked at this one and didn't have any other context of anything else Jesus or the apostles, those inspired by the Spirit of God, wrote, we might think, oh, okay, well, that just, all right, I just got to believe harder, and then I can, you know, I can positive think anything into existence, basically. And uh, here's what's sad, man. There, there are people that that's, that's what they believe. They'll often quote um, the Psalms that say, God will give you uh, the desires of your heart right? Those that have a, a false hermeneutic around this, they really like that verse. God will give you the desires of your heart. Well, yes, uh, but that verse has a first half, okay? It says, if you delight yourself in the Lord, he'll give you the desires of your heart, okay? And what happens when you delight yourself in the Lord is your will begins to be intertwined with his will, and you will be much less likely to pray prayers like James warns us against. James says you, you're praying and nothing's happening because you're praying with wrong motives. So that's possible. We need to know that, okay? Um, I've heard it said by, by several different people, I think it's a good summary way to think about this idea, God will give you everything you would ask for if you knew everything he knows. Let me say that again, because I didn't see many notes going down. This will help you understand how to think about prayer and approaching God. God will give you everything you would ask for if you knew everything he knew. Because there has to be a humble positioning of our own hearts and minds to understand. I may look at a situation and think, I know what the best outcome is here, and I know the best timeline for that outcome. God, I'm going to believe until that happens. Okay? What I need to believe in is that, yes, all things are possible, but what I need to believe in most of all is the goodness and the power of God that if I 
I can bring situations specifically to him. Of course, the Bible says in many, many different ways and at many different times that God welcomes our prayers and our specific prayers. But as we bring those to him, we have to, we have to leave open a place for us to humbly say, God, I'm putting this into your hands. I trust you to do with it what you see fit. I, here's what I think is a good idea. Lord, I'm submitting that to you. <laughs> but, but I also know I may have wrong motives. I also know you probably know some stuff about this. For sure you know some stuff about this that I'm unaware of. But God, as it pertains to this difficult situation, whatever I'm struggling with, I place myself in your hands. I know all things are possible because of you. Amen? Uh, 24, verse 24 is so pure and so powerful. It's, I'm so glad it's in the scriptures. I'm so glad that, that the disciples caught this. And so that's what Jesus responds, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. And, and immediately the boy's father cried out. He didn't whisper it. He cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Man, that's a good prayer. Man, that's a humble prayer. That is one that every one of us should embrace and understand. We need to be praying. God, I do believe. I am so convinced of your goodness and your power, and yet I know I am still riddled with unbelief. And I want to grow in my belief. I want to grow in my trust in you. But until that great and glorious day where the kingdom is fully and finally realized, I'm going to have this tug of war between faith and doubt. Lord, I believe. At least, I at least believe that you can help my unbelief. <laughs> Even if that's all I can grab about this situation right here. I know you can help me to trust you. And that's what I need, right? Man, that's good. Verses 25 through 29. I will just read it. When Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. Some of what the struggle might have been for the disciples, it doesn't say this explicitly here, but there was an idea there in that time that in order to cast out a demon or to uh, kind of take a position of power over a spiritual entity, you had to know its name. And so it was commonly thought that deaf and if, if, if a if there was a, a demonic spiritual force that was causing muteness or deafness, more so muteness, you couldn't get it, if it wouldn't speak its name, then it was hard for you to kind of get authority over it. I think Jesus kind of trounces on that whole deal, but that may have been part of what was hindering the disciples um, in, in terms of being able to, to believe that they could do it. Because we have to remember, Jesus had already sent the disciples out two by two, and they already came back with the report like, it was awesome! We, we preached about everything you told us to preach about, and we were casting out demons, and it was working, right? They came back excited. So it was not like they had never encountered a demon before, and it was not like they had never cast one out. Okay, so something, there's something going on here, and, and the Bible does give this idea in certain places of there, there may be demonic forces of, of greater stubbornness or, or power than others, and, and clearly Jesus does make a distinction here by the end of all this. So after crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out, and the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him, and he got up. When he came into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately. Why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. Now most, that's 
an interesting answer. This kind cannot come out by anything but prayer, right? Because a, a surface level reading of that, I would think, okay, so that means if I encounter a deaf mute demon, that I, I need to pray it out. But what is that? That's not what Jesus did. Jesus commanded to go like he does all the rest. So what, what gives? Most people understand this to mean that when he says that this kind can't come out by anything but prayer, that it has to do with a, a consistent spiritual discipline of prayer in the life of the person that is attempting to do this, okay? It's not a matter of a certain way you pray as you're trying to take authority over this demon and help this person. It's a matter of, have you been prayed up before you got here and got to it, okay? That also bears out in uh, Matthew's account. It's maybe a little bit more helpful. So let me, Matthew reporting the same instance says this, then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? Same question. Uh, and he said to them, because of your meager faith, for I truly say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. And so part of what Jesus is encouraging the disciples in here is this reality that as it, the reality of moving through this, this broken world and all that we're going to encounter, the, the difficulties and struggles and trials, um, the, the forces of darkness actively working against what it is God and his people are trying to do in the world, uh, there, is, there is this element in which uh, we, we don't want to, and this ties into like the, the, the soldier analogy that's used throughout the New Testament, right? That we, we can't think we're going to just, just run out here into the world and, and, and make a difference uh, and be able to push back against the forces of darkness if we have no spiritual discipline in our lives, if we're not people of prayer before we get into the interaction with something we got to have a fight with, right? Um, soldiers don't, you know, we don't, we don't let 18-year-olds sign up uh, to be in the military and say, all right, jump on the plane. Uh, we'll give you your gun when you get over to wherever we're sending you, right? What do you, first, you gotta, <laughs> there's a training uh, that happens, and that's for any job or anything you do. It's common sense, but sometimes it doesn't compute for us when it comes to spiritual things. And so um, that's one of maybe thousands of reasons why I would join Jesus in encouraging us to be people of prayer, uh, not just when we think we need it, but... Uh, to cultivate and, and to know that there's a process in our faith growing. Um, because, I, you know, I, when I run into somebody that needs the help that God provides, I, I want to be able to be a vessel. I hope you do too. <laughs> um, I want him to be able to use me. And, and I sure don't want my, my lack of, of fervor in the in-between time uh, to be the reason why I'm, I'm spiritually dry and don't have anything to give anybody else. Amen. This, this transfiguration miracle and, and this boy being freed from demonic torment, they, they are important accounts. Um, but they are also just, in, in one sense, they are a continuation of the same message we've seen throughout Mark. Uh, and that message that we've seen throughout Mark is the central message of the whole Bible. And we saw it in verse 1. And so turn your attention back to verse 1. What is it saying? It's saying the kingdom of God has come and is coming. That the kingdom of God is ruled by an infinitely glorious and yet unimaginably humble servant king. That that king's name is Jesus. And the one thing that matters more than anything else for each and every human being is whether or not we will trust him. That is the message of the book of Mark, which ties in perfectly with the message of all of the scriptures. 
The question to us today is, will we trust his deeds? And and even more importantly, will we trust his words? And will we cry out in humility when it's appropriate, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. The gospel of Jesus Christ, it frees us from the pitfalls of minimizing God's glory in order to believe we can be near him without grace. Because that's sometimes what happens. Sometimes it's, it's like we, we, we feel like the, the way to solve this, this problem that we can feel deep in our cores, that we are separated from the God that made us because of sin, is to diminish his glory, to feel like we in our state as we are can, can feel okay coming near him. It's not the way. It also keeps us out of the pitfall of thinking we can be holy enough on our own to solve the problem. It's not going to be through our philosophies. It's not going to be through our efforts. It's going to be through the glory and righteousness of Christ being given to us as a gift. And the way we reach and receive that gift is by trusting in faith that what he's said and what he's done is true and sufficient to save every man and every woman who will bow before him and acknowledge he's the good king they've been looking for. The gospel shows us a God willing to heap upon himself unimaginable suffering for the end goal of having us as his children forever. Why wouldn't you love him? Why wouldn't you want to serve that God? A God that glorious and simultaneously that humble. It almost, I almost can't even stretch to hold all of that in place. And that's probably the point. I should just be left silent and in awe and broken and humble and realizing my great need for him. This is why the kingdom of God runs against the grain of all our little earthly kingdoms. And this is why the only fear we should ever truly have is a reverential fear of the Lord. If we heed the words of Jesus, the fear of the Lord need not lead us into paralyzing terror. But instead it can lead us into joy and freedom and peace because of his awesome and merciful might. And because he calls those who trust him by faith his own. Friends, he's called us to freedom and peace. Not the kind of fear that so often, so often entangles us. It so often holds us down. But a holy and reverential acknowledgement of his great glory, his power, his goodness, and his love. May we find the peace that we're called to in that. In Christ's name. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. God, thank you. Thank you for this first half of Mark 9. I'm so thankful. (laughs) Thank you that in the power of your Holy Spirit, you caused men to be able to remember details like how you responded. That Jesus, we didn't just get broad explanations of, of these things, but we even heard the details, Lord, that we got to hear you respond if you can. (laughs) Lord, thank you. Thank you that you are a good God. Thank you that you are God totally worthy of our trust. Thank you, Lord, that there is this honoring, reverential fear that is a good thing for us to have. It's an acknowledgement of how far above us you are. 
But I thank you, Lord, that that doesn't have to have the effect it sometimes does. If we just stay there, if we just focus on how far you are above us, Lord, it, it leaves us feeling like there's no hope and we'll always be alienated from you. But, but as we contemplate how far above you or how far above us you are, Lord, may we always at the same time remember that you bridged that gap and you came and you got right near to us and you've invited us and you've made it possible for us to be robed in radiant robes of righteousness that we didn't earn so that we can stand one day in the fully exposed to your glory and just bask in it. God, we look forward with such anxious anticipation to that day. But Lord, in the meantime, we want to do absolutely everything you have called us to do. We want to perform all of what it is you've brought us together to perform. We want to help all the people you've called us to help. We want to walk in, a, in an absolute paradigm-shifting love that shows the world there's something different about Jesus and about his people. Lord, please help us. Please help us, Lord. Help us think right. And as a, as a, as a result of that, Lord, to, to live in light of it. We need your help. We can't do it alone. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.